Okay, we are prepared to continue our studies in the book of Revelation. And today, it was my intention to begin to look at the cycle of uh, trumpet visions. But instead, what I want to do is read chapter 8, verse 6, and then give an overview on the symbolic use of trumpets throughout Scripture. And, and in doing so, uh, give an immediate context for the use of the symbol or the significance of the trumpet symbol as it is used specifically throughout the book of Revelation. So let's look at verse 6. Uh, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And in the uh, Reformation Study Bible, there's a note that says this, that the visions of chapters 4 and 5 serve as an anchor for this next cycle of visions because what follows are uh, judgments being executed according to God's plan and purpose. Now, it's with that statement in mind that uh, because when you look at the visions in chapters 4 and 5, everything is centered around the triune God as the object of, of human and angelic worship and then also the opening uh, or the, the sense of peace before the throne. So everything that emanates from that in the seven seals emanates from the throne of the triune God. And the next cycle of visions continue in that very same theme. When you think of a seal, uh, specifically the seal as, as it was used in the Old Testament, it was... It was sort of a brand. It was if you had a document, and uh, rather than an envelope, if you had a document, you put something around it and you put a seal on it. And the idea and the seal could be an imprint. Usually, if it was uh, if it was issued from a king, it would have the imprint of his signet ring in in wax, and that seal would be in wax. And so, if that wax was broken, then that meant you broke the seal. And it's supposed to be delivered to uh, the person that it's addressed to, and the only one that is authorized to open it is the person that it's addressed to. So the idea of the seven seals is that what's contained in those seals is God's purpose and plan for creation, bringing it to consummation. The only one that is authorized to open it is the lamb that was slain. Everything that, that is expressed within uh, those seals represent the purposes of the triune God. The trumpets take us to another level. It's not a separate set of events, but it's the same set of events that will reoccur and occur and occur until the consummation, also emanating from the throne of God. But there is a different air when you use the idea or the symbol of, uh, of trumpets. So what I want to do for this session and next week, we'll pick up and look at the specific uh, trumpet visions. But today what we want to focus on is the, the use of the trumpet. So before we look at the individual trumpet visions, we'll look at the symbolic significance of the trumpets in Israel's history. And then we'll look at three specific references to trumpets that will give us a more direct context 
for the, uh, the trumpet visions here. Now, Dennis Johnson points out in his Triumph of the Lamb, he points out that in biblical literature, the sound of the trumpet announces the coming of God. The announce, it announces the coming of God specifically in splendor, as in a king, or in victory. Now, there are four uh, sets of uh, scriptures that we'll look at to give the overall use of trumpets in relation to Israel's history in the past. And by the way, I think it's, it's worth noting that in almost all ancient civilizations, and even to the very present moment, there is a, a, a symbolic use of trumpets, the sound of the trumpet. I remember watching as a kid um, cavalry movies, uh, cavalry movies where uh, the, the troops are coming in and the trumpet is, is sounding the charge and, as a battle charge. So there is, there is this use, this symbolic use, whether it's usually related to military or um, a, a kingly or a royal presence. Uh, so there is a, a significant symbolic use of, of trumpets throughout history, but especially in the history of Israel. So we'll look first at four main areas in Israel's history where trumpets are significant, and then we will look at the three that make up the context for uh, the, the, the trumpets as they are, are presented in the book of Revelation. The first one is in Exodus chapter 19, and we'll look at verses 16 and 19. And here we'll see trumpets being used when the Lord descends on Mount Sinai for the giving of the law. So the, the, Lord, the Lord descending, uh, the, the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord descending on Mount Sinai when he gives the law to Moses. In Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then in verse 19, it says, And as the sound of the trumpets grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So the presence of the Lord, now you remember, uh, it's, it's also referenced in the book of Hebrews, that when the Lord descended, the glory of the Lord descended on the mountain, you remember that the people wanted to go and be with Moses when he appeared before the Lord. And Moses gave them all of the instructions to prepare uh, for meeting the Lord on, on Mount Sinai. And as the thunder sounded and the lightning struck and the trumpets were sounded, this isn't the trumpet sound of Israel. Uh, this is the trumpets, wherever they are, it's the, the trumpet sound of, from, from, um, from the host, the heavenly host. And when that sound is heard, the people were so terrified that they fled back down the mountain and said, Moses, you go and talk to God, uh, and we'll just take what you say. So that's the first place that, that this, um, the sound of the trumpets were sort of an indication of God's descent. And it does carry the imagery of a, uh, a, a potentate or a king 
who is his his presence is, is coming forth and and so that's associated with thunder with lightning and we see as i mentioned in hebrews uh, in hebrews it mentions in chapter 12 that we've not come to a place we haven't come to the the, the presence of god's glory with with trumpets sounding and and mountains quaking and lightning and thunder and fire so the terror that's associated with the glory of God, that sinful men are not able, sinful men and women are not able to withstand, is also, you know, it's the, the trumpets are in conjunction with that, portraying the impenetrable glory and the, the, the glory of God that man cannot ordinarily face. Uh, a second use of trumpets in Israel's history is in Numbers, the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter um, chapter 10, Numbers chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 2 and 3, and this is in conjunction when, and, and it's very similar, by the way, to the Lord descending on the mountain, but in this instance, this is in conjunction with the place of worship, and actually I'll begin in verse 1. Uh, Hebrew, uh, excuse me, Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work. You shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So these two silver trumpets were supposed to be used in two regards. One, whenever there was an assembly of all of the people, they were summoned to the temple or to the, the, the tent that represented the tent of meeting where the Lord's presence is symbolized. So the trumpets were a call for the gathering of God's people if he had a particular word uh, for them outside of the ordinary rituals of, of worship and so forth. The other way that it was used is as a time of, to summons the people when it was time to break camp. Remember, this is during the period of the Exodus. So this is the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And the people broke camp, or they made camp according to the, uh, the guidance of God. So they didn't just stop because they felt like stopping and they didn't just say oh okay this is a good time to go it was they they were literally led by god in the wilderness and not only leading them in their journey but god led them when he told them to stop and make camp and he also led them in telling them to break camp so the two silver trumpets were the trumpeters would stand outside of the tent of meeting and they would summons God's people to the tent of meeting either for a special announcement or when it was time to break camp. So that's the second use. So first, the trumpets are, are in the history of Israel is a reminder of God's holy presence on Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. And then secondly, the trumpets are a reminder of God's leading of his people 
It's the voice. It's equivalent in that case to the voice of God saying it's time to listen up or it's time to break camp. The third uh, place that we see the use of trumpets is in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 9. And this is in conjunction with the year of Jubilee, the Jubilee celebration. So in uh, Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 9, it says, um, Then you shall sound the trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. Now remember that, well, I say remember, but in case you don't, it is worth looking up what the celebration of Jubilee was about. It was the completion of a cycle of seven seven-year periods. And in that year of Jubilee, all debts among the people of God were to be canceled. Uh, all land that had been lost because of debt again, was to be returned to the people, who, uh, the person who lost the land. So if you were uh, in your family, you had inherited some land, but because of tough times, uh, you ran into some, some difficulties and you weren't able to support the land, then a kinsman redeemer would buy the land from you or you would sell it to someone else within the tribe. And uh, at the, but however, at the end of that seven cycle, seven year period, on in the year of Jubilee, the fiftieth year, then all of the land was to be restored or returned to the original tribe and the, the heirs uh, and the heirs, and all debts were to be canceled. So the the trumpets here s signify two things. On the one hand. It signifies a royal decree. That's why it's called, it's in association with atonement. So all debts are canceled as decreed by the king. But secondly, it indicated celebration. The celebration is for those whose debts had been forgiven. And it's in conjunction with what had been lost and boy, there's a great redemptive picture here because with Adam, we lost um, access to the, the, the heavenly or, or we lost access to the Garden of Eden. And in a sense, being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that meant Adam forfeited for us our right to inherit the earth in the way that God intended us to inherit the earth. So what Christ has done in redemption is he has atoned for us so that our debt has been paid. And the inheritance that we would have gained had Adam remained in obedience is now ours. So uh, Jubilee, the time of Jubilee, is a time of redemption and restoration. That our debt has been atoned for and we have been restored to our promised inheritance. So the trumpet, again, is indicative of a divine gesture on the, part of, uh, on the part of God towards his people. His presence with the giving of the law, his, his announcement or his presence among the people as he tells them to break camp or to listen up, 
And in this instance, in Leviticus, the trumpet is, uh, is a portrayal of the announcement by the king that all of your debts are paid and all of that which you have lost because of debt has been restored. The fourth uh, use of the trumpets that we see in Israel's history is in conjunction with the coronation of a king. In 1 Kings chapter uh, 1, 1 Kings chapter 1, and we'll look at verse uh, 34. And this is, um, yeah, this is the formal ceremony with uh, Solomon as he is anointed as king of Israel. But in um, verse 34, it says, And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be a king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. I just read verse 35 as well. Um, and certainly that's one of the places where we are most um, accustomed to seeing trumpets in ceremonial use. As I mentioned, either in military or as it relates to uh, a royal coronation. Now, the significance of this for Old Testament Israel is that uh, the function of the Messiah is identified, it's actually covenantal language, but the function of the Messiah is described in three layers. The Messiah will be our prophet, our priest, and our king. And, and so therefore, every prophet individually, every priest individually, and even the lineage of the priesthood, and every king, is only a type of the one prophet, priest, and king who is the coming Messiah. The reason for the threefold office is because that's the threefold function of the image bearer of God. Adam was the first prophet, priest, and king. And in his sin, what God has done in his fallen state, God has taken that threefold function and has parsed it out in three offices within the nation of Israel. And actually, even before Israel is established as a nation, we see the function of a prophet. Uh, Moses served as a prophet, and this was before, uh, before the nation is established. We see Aaron and the priesthood established by Aaron. And even before Aaron and Moses, we see in the person of Melchizedek, one who was uh, described in Genesis, who met Abraham, the father of the faithful, and uh, to whom Abraham paid tithes. But Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, and he was the king of Salem. But we don't, so we do see individuals functioning perhaps in one or two capacities. Uh, even David, who was an anointed king, uh, is, is described as a prophet. Peter calls him a prophet in his sermon on, uh, on the day of Pentecost when he identifies that David couldn't have been referring to himself uh, when he wrote uh, Psalm 16. So, so David is called a prophet because God used him 
as a vehicle through whom he spoke. But the individual office of prophet, priest, and king are all preparatory. They, they, they exist separately because of the fracturing effects of sin. But they, are, they, they come together in the, in the coming of the Messiah, who is described as a prophet raised up that God had, had promised before, a singular prophet, a singular priest in whom all of the functions of the Aaronic priesthood would find their substance and their fulfillment, and a singular king who would reign and rule forever. So he is the consummate prophet, he is the consummate king, and he is the final priest. So in Christ, everything that has become disjointed and lost in Adam is brought together. And so it's only fitting that when this king ascends to his throne, which at, at this point we know that, that Solomon is not just standing on his own, and it's not just the office, but the office of king for national Israel was always prototypical to the coming king, the son of David who would reign forever. So we see in celebration of the king taking his throne, uh, Solomon becomes that first link of the seed and offspring of David from whom Christ would, would descend. So it's in these four areas that we see the use of trumpets used in a symbolic way in conjunction with the redemptive history of God's Old Testament or, or uh, Old Testament Israel. We see it with the giving of the law, announcing it's, it's really a wonderful display, terrifying but wonderful, that God who is so great that he can't be contained by the heavens condescends on Mount Sinai but he condescends to announce his law. His presence, and especially his presence with the law, is too great for humans to take. And the trumpets as they sound, and you'll notice that in the passage we read from uh, Exodus 19, uh, especially in that second verse, verse 19, it indicates that the trumpets continued, they got louder. It was this, you know, so it, it reached this crescendo. Uh, and then secondly, uh, the trumpets sound the, the fact that the one who sovereignly, providentially leads and guides his people is, even though he has spoken through the law, he is speaking at this moment. And so this is an important moment to either listen or your sovereign king is now telling you it's time to break camp. And then thirdly, in celebrating the jubilee where the king announces all debts are canceled. And then fourthly, when the king is received into his kingdom, as he is announced and, and you see the presence there of prophet and priest and king all present as the Lord confirms uh, this next manifestation of the progressive unfolding of the king of glory who is prophet, priest, and king, all in one person. So with, with that as a backdrop, what I want to do in terms of understanding the context for the use of the, uh, of, um, of the trumpets here in the book of Revelation, 
there are three things that I think is immediately, even though you can make inferences from those first four that we use, certainly this is um, what's being unfolded in the, the cycle of trumpet visions, is the king of glory manifesting judgment or calling people to battle uh, and, and manifesting his will throughout the earth. Uh, so it's certainly divine uh, or kingly activity that is portrayed by the trumpet visions. But there are three things in particular that we'll look at. The first one is this. The trumpets, as they are sounded in the book of Revelation and in the cycle of trumpet visions, are in conjunction or should be in, uh, understood in conjunction with the trumpets sounded first off in Joshua with the battle of Jericho and I'm going to say not only Joshua and Joshua chapter 6 which we'll look at in a moment but not just Joshua Joshua chapter 6 verses 2 through 27 and also in Judges when Gideon has his 300 soldiers and the 300 soldiers are broken up into companies of, of three or three companies of 100. And they are going up against, you know, 300,000 soldiers. And yet there's only 300. In both cases, and I don't, well, let's, let's go to the Joshua passage. I didn't want to uh, spend all of our time there, but uh, let's look at, at what takes place in Joshua. Because the trumpets sound... Uh, well, I shouldn't mention this, but oftentimes when we don't understand the redemptive purpose of history or, of re uh, or the redemptive purpose of Scripture and how God uses his, his people in the Old Testament in that instance, it's a historical instance, this is actually happening. This is not given to us as a prescription. In other words, there is no value unless God tells you to do this, there is no value in marching around something that you want uh, on your own for seven days and seven times on the seventh day. It, it's not going to become yours. So you might see a house that you want and you say, oh, well, I'm just going to claim it and march around it. Or even if you buy it, you don't need to march. You bought it. So you don't need to do that. And I mention this because there was a church in Los Angeles a number of years ago and they wanted to buy, um, let's just say, a sporting venue. What had been used as a sporting venue was a big, a big public facility and they wanted to buy it. And they marched around seven times, um, you know, for seven days, they marched around this particular building that they were going to buy. And I remember saying at the time, you know, I guess that's cute and all that people are all, you know, that we are happy we bought this building, but marching didn't give you that building. Uh, it's paying the mortgage. It's making the, de the deposit. That's what gave you the building. And that's not the purpose of what is portrayed in Joshua. This isn't given to us so that we can know how to conquer what we want. God only describes for us how he fought for his people in the overthrow of Jericho. Uh, there was no 
contingency of soldiers that went in. This is all God. The reason he has them to march around the walls of Jericho for seven times and seven times on the seventh day is to demonstrate that he is bringing down the walls in a very direct way, in the same way that the Lord himself, not Moses, the Lord himself opened the waters of the Red Sea. So this isn't the time of year that the Red Sea uh, re 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 um, uh, recedes. No, God opens the water. He used a strong wind to do it, but he opens the waters. He parts the waters of the Red Sea so that his people could go through on dry land. What is taking place in Joshua is God says, you march and I'll take care of the walls. So in Joshua chapter um, 6, uh, we'll begin in verse 1. It says, oh, I'm looking in Judges. Joshua chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty king of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of rams, of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great joy, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. It's, it, it's, the whole chapter is pretty much describing what will take place, but God has already described it. You do the marching, and you have the priests blow the trumpets, and I'll bring down the walls. So this isn't a great strategy. This is a divine command. Go and march. And notice what he, the way he begins. I have given this to you. So the trumpets is, and, and, and what uh, Jericho represented was an enemy of God and an enemy of the people of God. And so the blowing of the trumpet. Uh, the blowing of the trumpets and the, the, the falling of the walls is an indication that God has now come to overthrow this kingdom. We see also in Judges, Judges chapter 7, and even though, let's see, even though I want to focus on verses 20 through 22, I want to begin with the, uh, when, when the Lord calls to Gideon and prepares Gideon for the battle. So our focus is going to be on verses 20 through 22. But just for context, let's go all the way back to verse 2. Uh, in verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim 
in the ears of the people crying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So the Lord is made clear to Gideon in the same way that he is made clear to Joshua. I have given you Jericho. And here he is making clear to Gideon that I am giving you uh, the Midianites. And if you have too many people and if you have too many things going on, Israel at some point in their history is going to be boasting in what I did for them. So now we fast forward in verses 20 through 22 as they are preparing for battle. It says this, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars and they held in their left, uh, that they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward uh, Zezera, as far as the border of uh, Abel Melola by Tabith. Again, it's the blowing of the trumpets and the Lord working through that. And the, the point being is the enemies of God are overthrown because the Lord has come in battle for and with his people against the enemies of both himself and his people. The cycle of trumpet visions are a manifestation of the king of glory and his military victory over his enemies and the people um, or and, and the, the enemies of his people. Here's the second set or second uh, instance where the trumpet of the Lord sort of contextualizes the trumpets as we see here in uh, the book of, uh, of Revelation. In the prophecy of Joel, Joel chapter 2, and of course Joel is most famous to us because of the day of Pentecost, and that's where uh, Peter describes on the day of the Lord, that, that phrase again, very interesting use of it, but the day of the Lord in conjunction with the speaking of, of tongues or the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But in Joel, and I'm not going to read over the whole chapter, but I will begin with verse 1. And the context for uh, chapter 2 of Joel is the coming of the day of the Lord. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Now it is worth noting that you'll see uh, similarities, uh, especially the first four trumpets that, are, that sound and destruction that takes place in the earth in conjunction with the, the, the trumpet visions. There's similarities to the day of the Lord described here in, uh, in Joel. For instance, in verse 3, or in verse 2, it says, A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, 
like blackness there is spread upon the mountain a great and powerful people like there uh, a people like uh, that has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns the land is like the garden of Eden before them but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them so the day of the Lord is described as as something cataclysmic that takes place within uh, within the earth and so what's seen here in chapter 2 of Joel is seen also it's, it's parallel in some of the events even with the the first uh, trumpet that's um, that, that that is sounded if I can go back there just for a moment in Revelation chapter 8 verse 7 it says the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth so um, the day of the Lord is the, the, the sounding of the trumpet the enemies of the Lord or the day of the Lord is seen as an overthrow of earthly kingdoms because the king of glory is overthrowing that and then it's also seen in conjunction with disorders within the created realm all of these things are reflected in the use of the trumpet visions that we see in the book of Revelation God coming as a military leader and God coming to bring disruptions in the earth because it's the day of the Lord but the third one uh, that really brings it together and, and, and contextualizes both the day of the Lord as well as God coming as our military as, as a, to, to bring uh, defeat to the powers of the earth it's kind of brought together in the second coming of Christ so what I want to do is look at a few verses uh, three in particular that use the imagery of, of sounding trumpets in conjunction with the coming the second coming of Christ uh, three places the first one is Matthew 24 verse 31 secondly you can look them up first uh, first Corinthians 15 verse 52 and then the third one is first Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 so we begin with Matthew Matthew 24 and verse 16 or verse 31 Matthew 24 verse 31 and it says, um, well, in fact, I'll begin with verse 30. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is Paul's great uh, apologetic of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection, both the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
verse 52, the Apostle Paul says this, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And that's in reference to the second coming of Christ. And, of course, the one place where it is all brought all together is in 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Again, the Apostle Paul. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, put all together, these three sets of scriptures, this is the context that establishes our understanding of the symbolic use of trumpets in the cycle of trumpet visions. We can put it all under the label of the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, which is progressively unveiled, it will find its consummation with the raising of the dead and the return of Christ. But the day of the Lord means the coming of the King of Glory. And just as, as God came and delivered Israel into the hands of Israel, the city of, of Jericho, and just as the Lord gave over to the 300 soldiers that were with Gideon, he gave them victory over their enemies. In the first advent of Christ, he came and announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. In which case... He defeated our greatest enemy. He defeated him in his temptation in the wilderness, and he defeated him in his death on the cross, and he defeated our enemy, our great enemy, even in his resurrection. So what has been accomplished in the first advent of the day of the Lord will be consummated in the final coming or the second coming of Christ. So what is being revealed in the cycle of the trumpet visions are things in conjunction with both the first and the second advent of the King of Glory who has come in the name of the Lord. So we have the victory, the, uh, we have the trumpet signaling uh, the coming of the King. So there's a royal dimension to it. We have a military di dimension to it that the king has come, and he has come bearing the sword. But we also have a celebratory note to it, because his presence, his final coming, is the final victory for the people of God, where we will reign with him, and we will rule with him, and be victorious with him over the enemies of God and the people of God. So I wanted to set the, the table before we get into the content, again, making the point that we have made continuously. And the book of Revelation is about um, 
it's, it, it is about recapitulation and it is about reiteration. The same events are shown to us over and over again and the same points of contact and the same emphasis for comfort are to be given. Everything portrayed in this, this cycle of seal visions and everything portrayed in the cycle of trumpet visions have been issued forth by God under his sovereign rule and the people that are associated with the lamb are secure. We may struggle, we may experience consequences of God's curse on the creation, but we are secure. And it's important for us to know that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of history. He is our sovereign ruler. He is the prophet, priest, and king who has restored to us the kingdom that you have that you have created for us. And so we pray that as we work our way through your revealed word, as you told your servant, the Apostle John, from the beginning, let he who hears this be comforted. We pray that we are comforted. We live in difficult and trying times. We see things around us that don't always make sense. And certainly the pundits of our generation are not able to make sense but your prophetic word equips us and prepares us. Give us the knowledge of who you are and what you've given us in your son. Give us the comfort and the realization that there is nothing that is taking place within your creation that is outside of your power or beyond your will. Give us the assurance, reaffirm to our, 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 our wandering hearts, reaffirm to us that your love is an everlasting love. There is nothing that has been purchased by the blood of your son that can be lost in the world in which we live. We pray for our church. We pray for the church universal in all parts of the world that you, where the gospel is clearly and properly preached. We pray, O oh God, that your people would be comforted and focused in terms of who we are and whose we are. And we pray especially for this local assembly. We lift before you those who are sick and those who are shut in, and we pray for our bereaved families, and especially the Gibbs family. But not only the, the, Greek, the Gibbs family and their loss of Deacon Gibbs, but our grief in the loss of our dear brother. Thank you, Father, for your tender mercies in Christ. Strengthen us by your grace that we would see and recognize in him everything that is necessary for life and godliness even in a time such as this. We ask these things in Christ's name.